This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. It's page 939 in the Pew Bibles. Romans chapter 1. While you're turning there, I do want to invite you to return tonight to our annual service of Thanksgiving. Uh, as you know, if you've been there, um, this is a service in which you have the opportunity to speak, to give thanks publicly to the Lord. Uh, one of the most haunting passages or verses of Scripture to me is when Jesus heals the ten lepers And all ten are healed, and only one of them comes back to thank Jesus. And Jesus says, we're not all ten healed. Where are the other nine? Now, Jesus notices when we give thanks to him or when we don't give thanks to him. And certainly you don't have to be at the service tonight or give thanks publicly to give thanks to the Lord. uh, Thanksgiving to him that pleases him. Uh, But if you would like to give thanks publicly for the Lord's goodness to you, uh, or if you just want to be here to hear what others have to say, invite you to return Tonight, And as Mike mentioned, we are meeting a week from tonight, uh, Thanksgiving weekend, Sunday night. Uh, missions committees met with some missionaries who are getting ready to go out, and uh, they're actually in California and are here for a little while. Uh, so this is an opportunity to get to hear from them, to meet them, hear about their ministry that we might not otherwise have for a long time. So just be aware of that for a week from tonight. This morning, we're looking at Romans chapter 1. Beginning in verse 8. Hear the word of God. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. We give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for blessing us with the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And Father, thank you for your word, that it is true, that it is powerful, that it is accurate. Father, we thank you that as we study it, uh, we receive it not just as Paul's words, though he was no inconsiderable human being, but he's not God. You are. And we receive it as your word and as truth. And we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Every time we say the Apostles' Creed together, which we didn't do this morning, but when we do that, we say we profess to believe in the communion 
of the saints. We believe it, but do you know what it is? Be careful about professing to believe things that you're not sure what they are. It's a good thing to believe in. We do need to know what it is. What is the, what do we mean by the expression of communion of the saints? Is that, you know, when we're standing around the coffee pot, drinking coffee, eating cake and donuts? Yes. Or at least that's part of it. It's, it's not the entirety of it. But yes, that can very much be a part of the communion of the saints. But it's more than that. You know, the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, which, by the way, I commend to you as a valuable manual for the Christian life. You, you may have never read it, and to you it sounds vaguely uh, kind, of, kind of theological and, and difficult. And in some places, maybe it is. But it addresses quite a few very practical subjects, and sometimes people will come to me and ask a question, what, what about this? Or, you know, what, what does the Bible say about this? I say, well, have you read, read the confession on that? It's a good place to start, because it's short, it's concise, and it addresses a lot of things. Well, I have a whole chapter uh, in the confession, chapter 26, of the communion of the saints. And it describes the biblical teaching that this involves. It's our communion with one another that grows out of our union with Christ, because we have one Lord, because we have this one head, uh, and we are united to him. We are therefore joined and connected to one another. We share in one another's graces and gifts that God gives to each of us for the benefit of the body of Christ. Uh, We do all we can for one another, for our mutual good, both physically and spiritually. And I'm paraphrasing the teaching of the confession here. Uh, And this communion, that we have, this fellowship, the obligations, the benefits that go with it are for one another, but are not limited to one another. They, they extend to all believers, even throughout the world, as God gives us opportunity to be a benefit to them and to benefit from them. Now, as we've gotten a start in Romans, this first section, uh, we've looked at the greetings. Really, the introduction to Romans is chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Uh, as you look at these these verses, it kind of divides into three parts, the first of which we've already looked at, and that's the greetings. And Paul sort of follows the standard greeting form of the day, but tends to pack it full of as much truth as he can. Uh, the second part we'll look at today, and that is more just the, the greetings uh, as he's, or the, uh, his relationship with the Romans as he greets them. He turns his attention on them and his relationship to them. We could say the first part is, you know, Paul and his ministry. Uh, here we could say this part's Paul and the Romans. And then verses 16 and 17, well-known uh, verses in Romans, really uh, are about Paul and the gospel. And really kind of he declares the theme of the rest of this letter in verses 16 and 17. Lord willing, we'll look at that soon. But today we're looking at what Paul says about himself and the Romans and his relationship to them here in verses 8 through 15, and he's effectively talking about the communion of the saints, his relationship to them. Uh, what is it that he offers to them as he writes to them? And for many of them, this would be their introduction to him. What is it he offers? What is it he wants from them? Well, we'll look at this passage and see here that Paul describes actually a number of critical elements that are involved in the communion of the saints, the fellowship, uh, the connection that we enjoy with one another. Because Paul's writing to a church, again, that he hasn't been to. He didn't start it. He hasn't been there. talks a little about that here 
Uh, but even so, he has a bond with them, and there's certain aspects that come out. Well, what are they? Let's look at that this morning. The first one uh, that comes very obviously uh, here in this first verse or two is that of thanksgiving. Paul's thankfulness for them in verse 8. He says, first, which, by the way, there is no second. Again, um, Paul was a preacher, and sometimes you get the first, but you never do hear the second or third. Uh, or maybe he's just saying a first importance, but uh, first, there is no second. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. The first thing he states is thanksgiving for them. And again, there's a little bit of following a form here, but there's no doubt this is sincere. Uh, Paul's thanksgiving for these believers in Rome. And notice what he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Uh, it's because of Christ that Paul can thank God. It's because of Jesus Christ that uh, he can come into God's presence, that his thanksgiving is acceptable to God. We, we never approach God in ourselves. We always approach God, even to give him thanks, through the mediation of Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying here. I, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And, of course, it's because Jesus Christ he can thank God for them, because Jesus saved them. For all of you. And again, there's that emphasis on the, the whole church. Verse 7, to all those in Rome, thank my God for all of you. Now, he does name names in, in chapter 16, pretty specific. He knows some of the people in the church. But he thanks God not just for those that he knows, but for all of them as a church. Why? Because, he says, your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, what he's not saying is that the faith of the Roman Christians, their faith in Jesus, is something that's being proclaimed in missionary effort through the world. Rather, he's saying that you believe in, in Christ is being made known throughout all the world. And by all the world, he means uh, the world where the gospel has gone, uh, not the entire planet, but all the world where there are Christians who, who would be happy to hear that there are believers that there is a church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the imperial city of Rome itself. Uh, they would be delighted, as was Paul, to know that in that place, the center of the world, the capital of the world, capital of the Roman Empire, uh, with all of its glories and with all of its sin vices, that's a, there's a church there, that there are believers there in that influential city who are living for Christ, who are gathering to worship Christ, who are bearing witness for him in that place. And Paul says he gives, gives thanks to the Lord because they're there and because their faith is known throughout the world. It's being proclaimed. It's being declared that there are Christians in the capital city. And who knows what kind of influence they can have, not just on Rome, but on the rest of the empire because of that influential and strategic place that they occupy. And for that, Paul gives thanks that their faith is known, that they're there. You know, that's a, the a first element, it seems, and Paul says this is first, uh, this thanksgiving uh, for them, the fact that they're there, the fact they're serving Christ, it seems to me is a very important element of the communion of the saints, that we are thankful uh, not only for the work of other churches in other places, and we should be, uh, I don't know about you, it thrills my heart to hear of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City that is having such a great influence for the gospel in so strategic 
and in many ways difficult a place. I think there's an analogy there uh, to hear that there are believers serving the Lord in, in New York. Uh, or Capitol Avenue Baptist Church, where Mark Dever serves, uh, right there near the Capitol, preaching the gospel of Christ in our nation's capital. To be thankful for the work of God in other places, uh, what the Lord is doing, whether it's far away or across town or nearby, uh, but, not, but not other churches, but also one another. Uh, to give thanks for the Lord that uh, you and I are here, that the Lord has brought us together as a body of believers. Because the tendency, because of our sinfulness, is sometimes to, to get irritated with one another or to, to grumble because of one another. And Paul certainly has to deal with that in, in many of these churches he writes to, uh, but rather to be thankful for one another's faith, that every one of us but who is a believer here today is someone for whom Jesus gave his own life, for whom he shed his own blood, And if Jesus loved that person sitting next to you like that, certainly we should be thankful for them and love them as well. So an important element of this communion, this connection that Paul has with many of these Christians he's never met is just thanksgiving that they're believers and that they are where they are. They're doing what they're doing. They're serving the Lord. Second element, not only thankfulness, but a key element of communion of the saints is prayerfulness, that we're a praying people. Look at verse 9. For God is my witness. Interesting that, that Paul invokes the Lord. He's basically making an oath here. He's, he's avowing something that's inward, something they really can't verify. So Paul calls the Lord to bear witness. The Lord knows. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Paul says, God, whom I serve with my spirit, a lot of debate over what he means by with my spirit, probably could mean something like whom I serve wholeheartedly. Uh, not the Holy Spirit here, but my own spirit. Uh, we might say, it, our, our idiom might be, you know, I serve from the heart uh, with all that's in me. And I think that's what Paul is effectively saying here. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Now, Paul doesn't mean without ceasing in the sense of without interruption, but I think he means without ceasing, I mention you in my prayers in the sense of frequently, regularly. You know, not much time goes by that I'm not praying for you once again. Now, Paul doesn't elaborate here. He doesn't say much about it. But in other places, he does tend to spell out some of the kinds of things he prays for. Uh, turn over to Ephesians 1. Um, is an example of the kinds of things Paul would pray for. And by the way, a great uh, model for our praying for one another uh, as Paul prays for them. Notice what he says. Verse 16, Ephesians 1.16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, similar language as he writes Ephesus. What does he pray? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that they would, they would have a God-given understanding of spiritual truth. Uh, verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. You know, to have a grasp on this, this, this hope, this, this salvation that's theirs. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? 
according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So these are some of the kinds of things that Paul prays. Colossians, similar kind of list, praying for their knowledge, praying to be able to grasp the, the greatness of the love of Christ in another place. And those are the kinds of things that Paul prays. Now, Paul prays for them because he's a brother in Christ. He also prays for them because as an apostle and leader of the church, it is an obligation. Uh, Mike read our Old Testament reading earlier, which is part of uh, Samuel's kind of his farewell address at the end of his ministry. And the people ask him to pray for them. And he says, far be it for me to sin by not praying for you. Samuel, in his role as a leader, sees it as a sin if he neglects that duty of praying for the people of God. Uh, and he goes on to say, and to instruct you, you know, in, in, in the right way. Which, by the way, is an interesting parallel to uh, Acts chapter 6, you know, where the, there's the, the difficulty feeding the widows that gives rise to the establishment of deacons whose primary ministry is that of mercy. Uh, and it frees up the apostles to give themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer, or as he says there, to prayer and to the ministry of the word, which, by the way, is exactly what Samuel says, that, I may, that I, God forbid I would not sin against you by failing to pray for you and to teach you. And the apostles give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So well before the apostolic era, Samuel was carrying out that ministry of prayer and the word. Well, Paul sees it as an obligation uh, to pray for these believers. And I would say that's part of the communion of the saints. Part of our connection with each other is certainly to pray for each other, uh, to pray for other churches, other ministries, to pray for one another as families, pray for one another as individuals. Uh, certainly, um, while it may be incumbent on leaders to do that, as, as, fe- as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, part of our communion and fellowship with one another is to pray seriously and regularly for each other. I don't know uh, if, how much you've done that. I know you probably pray for people where you know there's a difficulty or problem or need. A lot of times that might come out on Sunday nights in our prayer time or maybe in a small group setting. Um, but it's also helpful to, if you would like to be more aggressive and proactive in doing that, to just take the church phone list and uh, maybe pray, keep it in your Bible, pray for, just pray for the next family each day. Uh, and go through and, and pray for uh, families in the church, for their children, and so forth. It's a great way to, to carry out that aspect of prayerfulness in the communion of the saints. So thankfulness, prayerfulness. Another aspect of this communion is a mutual encouragement, that we are to encourage one another. And this really is the heart of what, is, what Paul is saying to them here in uh, verse 10 again. He says, asking, part of what he prays is that somehow... By God's will, uh, being somewhat indefinite here, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. You almost get the sense here, and there's some speculation about this, What's there in Rome some sense of disappointment, maybe even mild irritation 
that the apostle to the Gentiles has yet to come to visit the church, Gentile predominantly church, in the very capital of the Roman Empire. Because several times Paul seems to insist that it's his desire to do so. It's certainly not for lack of interest or desire, but um, but simply having been hindered to this point. He's just had other things going on. Oh, we don't know. That's speculation. But certainly Paul uh, several times expresses his desire to be there, this longing to be with them, uh, one, for Paul's sake, because he is the apostle to the Gentiles, because he wants to be a blessing to them, to provide some benefit to them. He says in 11, How I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. What exactly it is, we don't know, and Paul's indefinite. Some spiritual gift, he doesn't know. May not know until he's there and knows what the real needs are and uh, can serve them in a way, uh, can give them uh, that which will be a blessing and a help to them. But just as quickly, uh, he goes back and says, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul's treading fairly lightly, being pretty tactful, diplomatic here. Again, many of these people he doesn't know. He does not want to somehow be seen as as being the big apostle coming into town and telling them how it's going to be. Uh, He reminds them that he he may be an apostle, but he's also uh, a fellow believer, brother in Christ. And just as he may have something to offer them that will be a blessing to them, they in turn have that which will help him, will be a blessing to him. So Paul definitely sees his ministry to them as a two-way street. He will bless them, yes, but they also will be um, uh, have a ministry to him and encourage him, because each of them are uh, is believers, both yours and mine. Verse 13, I want you to know, I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So it's for their sake, yes, but it also is for his sake as well that he wants to go to them. Now, definitely, a huge part of the communion of the saints is using our gifts, abilities that God uses and blesses, uh, to minister to one another. Paul, in many places, emphasizes this, often uses the analogy of a body. The body has many parts. The parts all serve different functions. Uh, have different roles to play. Some are more visible, some are less visible, but they're all important in the body functioning as it should. And obviously this is a key element of the communion of the saints, is the mutual encouragement, mutual ministry that we have to one another. Uh, That's why it's important as believers that we are involved in a local congregation, uh, that we are connected to other believers uh, so that we can bless them so that they will bless us. Paul goes on to mention in verse 14 another element of it, and that is obligation. Now, Paul's obligation here is unique as an apostle, as one the Lord is called to preach the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 14, I am under obligation. Now, he talks about reaping some harvest among them as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Uh, that's not for personal gain, not to build himself up, but he quickly adds, I'm under obligation. I have this debt, this obligation to them that Christ has placed on me to do this by coming to you, by ministering to you. It's my desire. I want to be there, but it's also my calling. It's this obligation that I have to carry out this calling, as he says, both to Greeks and to barbarians. Uh, an interesting uh, division 
the Greeks tended to look on anyone who was non-Greek as a barbarian. In fact, the, the very word barbarian uh, is an example of onomatopoeia, you know, a word that sounds like what it is, words like pow, you know, or slap, uh, splash, words that sound like what they are. Well, to the Greeks, the speech of foreigners sounded like bar, 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 bar. If you've ever heard someone speaking a language you don't understand, then you, you know what they're talking about. It just sounds like syllables. It doesn't mean anything. And so the Greeks would refer to them as barbarians. They're the ones who spoke in this way. Well, Paul uses that expression, and as well as to the wise and to the foolish. A lot of speculation of exactly what groups he's talking about, if he could nail it down. I don't think he really has anybody specifically in mind, other than just to say all kinds of people, Greeks and non-Greeks, foolish people, they were foolish and, and, and unwise, uh, or foolish and wise Greeks, foolish, no doubt wise barbarians, uh, maybe some even within the church in Rome. So he's just saying, basically, I have this obligation to all kinds of people to make Christ known. I'm under obligation to both Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, Paul's obligation was unique, as this call of the Lord placed on him. Uh, but there certainly is an obligation we have to one another, uh, an indebtedness to one another with what God has given us in terms of, of material goods, spiritual goods, uh, spiritual gifts. Uh, we're, we're wrong not to be of service to other believers, not to minister to them either individually or in, in groups in, in some way uh, as well. Paul's call is unique, but we too are under obligation with the gospel and with the graces and the gifts that the Lord has given to us to one another. But notice, it's not just obligation. Look at verse 15. The last element he talks about, we've looked at thankfulness, prayerfulness, mutual encouragement, a sense of obligation. The last one is an eagerness that takes it beyond the mere grudging fulfillment of duty to a delight. Look at verse 15. So he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. A couple things to notice. One, he's eager to do it. It's not just his obligation. Yes, that's there. But it's his heart's desire. It's what he wants to do. The other thing that's interesting is he says, I want to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Now, he could mean by that evangelism to others in the city of Rome, and that's possible. But again, even there, it sort of goes against the grain of his not wanting to build where someone else has built. He, Paul likes to be a pioneer to, to start something new. But it seems like what he's saying is, I want to come to you and in your churches preach the gospel to you. You know, we Christians need the gospel. It's not as though, you know, we preach the gospel to unbelievers and then we have to try hard to, to, to be like Jesus. You know, like Paul says to the Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, you know, do you now continue on in the flesh? No. As Christians, we need the gospel every day. We need the gospel preached to us because it's not just for our initial salvation, but daily that we need to repent of our sin Go back to the cross, be reminded of God's provision and his grace to us in Christ, know that our sins are forgiven, and uh, and follow Jesus. That's not a once-for-all-time thing, although the initial time we believe is. But we continue to need to hear the good news of God's love, of his grace in Christ, of his salvation in Christ, of the gift of the Holy Spirit to us. As we gather here, 
It's not as though if I were preaching to unbelievers, I'd preach the gospel. And since I'm preaching mostly to believers here, I just talk about how we can you know, hunker down and try harder to live for Jesus. No, hopefully every Sunday, even if there's not an unbeliever in the room, we preach the gospel. Because even as Christians, even as mature Christians, we always need to hear the gospel of Christ. Because uh, we're sanctified by faith, just as we are justified by faith, although we do cooperate in it through the means of grace God has given. Paul says, I'm eager, it is my delight, to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So as we think about this whole thing of the communion of the saints, the confession does a great job of kind of describing what it is, but I think Paul hits on these various elements that that are seen in it. There's thankfulness for one another here in this room and for one another who are believers around the world. There's prayerfulness precisely because we are thankful for the work God is doing uh, or concerned that he would do. We are in in prayer for one another. Uh, we are given gifts and grace by God so that we can encourage one another, build each other up, help each other along in our Christian walks. Uh, we do have a sense of obligation to uh, use the gifts and the grace that God has given us to minister to others. But it's not just duty. It's not just obligation. It is and should be uh, something that we are eager to do. And these things together make up uh, in a living way what we would call the communion of the saints. And if you throw in some coffee and donuts, well, that doesn't hurt either. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the body of Christ, for one another. Uh, thank you, Father, that as we look around, we see people that you loved from before the foundation of the world. And we see people for whom Christ suffered the judgment of hell itself so that they wouldn't have to. Father, we thank you for Paul, for his love, for that Roman church, even though he had never been there, for the, the prayers that he poured out for that church and its influential location and his concern, his desire to be with them. Father, I pray that these things would be evident in our life together as a body of believers, uh, that your name would be glorified and that we would be made stronger and that the world around us would see that we are different, that we are the people of God, that we belong to Christ. And we pray it all in his name, for his glory. Amen.